0: Hi, everybody. You're going to be really happy that you showed up for this episode today. Cheryl Jones is a grief and loss expert, counselor, podcast host, author, and just really an extraordinary person. She takes us through so much of her personal story and her personal ethos of grief and joy being all part of the same story. And she also talks about my favorite movie of all time, Truly, Madly, Deeply. I'm really glad you're here. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am completely delighted to have, I mean, I would say a foremost grief podcaster here with us today, Cheryl Jones. Cheryl, thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to be here. We're going to have such a great conversation. Let me tell the three of my listeners who don't already know who you are. Let me read them your bio because everybody else knows I already know. And and I've been telling um, folks that we were going to be talking. So everyone is excited as I am, but here we go. Cheryl Jones is a grief counselor, educator, and host of Good Grief, a podcast about transformation after loss, a really good podcast. She is also the author of a novel, An Ocean Between Them. Cheryl's work is informed by the 10 years of her first wife's life-limiting illness. Expected to live six months to a year, she lived with cancer for almost a decade. In the losses Cheryl has experienced since then, she has been grateful for what she learned about facing loss and finding greater meaning in her life as a result. Cheryl lives in Oakland with her second wife and is grateful for three children, three grandchildren, and the wonder of living what a great bio yay well cheryl i'm so glad you're here and i had to hit record because we were already diving into the meat of the work um and i would love for you to just tell people um in your own words how you how you came into the space of grief and loss
1: so my first wife i met when i was 16. wow We were in every sort of relationship between then and her death that you can imagine. I won't go into all the details, but for the last period of her life, we were beloveds. We were were Mm -hmm. permanent life partners, but we thought permanent was going to be very short. And then um, she kept living and she was never well. She had uh, multiple myeloma, which if, if people have that now, they, they tend to live a long time. At that time, it was like a quick death. It was one of those snappy deaths. And, um, but she didn't die. And um, I, I guess I would say, I don't think we can create our own reality when it comes to bodies, but it was probably a combination of modern science and stubbornness, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she just, never quit. She just was Mm. that kind of person, very fierce, loving person. So in that time, we, we spent quite a number of years trying to face off with death. We went to a lot of Stephen Levine workshops. We, we talked incessantly about death and fear. And what happened over time is that that stopped being the main subject.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, It was going to happen. We made an an agreement together that we did not have to accept it until it happened, but we would be real about it. Yeah. We accepted the reality that it would happen. Mm -hmm. And we waited until it did happen to have to accept it happening, if that (laughs) makes sense. And um, I I like to say that you cannot be prepared, but you can prepare.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that period of time was incredible preparation. Um, A lot of the things that I encounter in people I work with, because I'm a grief counselor as well as a podcaster, it's a lack of acceptance for their own experience. Yeah. It's, um, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Something's wrong. I, I can't feel better. You know, all these things that are really about not surrendering To what you're experiencing Mm. and that's what i feel i learned during that time Mm -hmm. and interestingly what that opened for me was uh a lot more courage uh a lot more joy when that when i stopped being anxious about my life when i stopped relating to it like um like a problem yeah then everything opened up. And I felt at the time as if my personality had had transformed my Mm. personality, you know, and I'd had therapy before that. I had learned how to cope with my personality pretty well, but I had a different personality now. Yeah. Um, Including that I was really pretty painfully shy my whole life until that period Mm. of time. Obviously, I am not shy any longer. <laughs> and, you know, I can have a little recurrence if I go into a crowd of strangers, but it lasts that long. I just stand there until I feel better and go forward, right? So for me, that period of time, I, I don't want to foreshorten the pain of watching someone you love with every fiber of your being die of a terrible illness. Yeah, that was also going on. It's just that that wasn't the only thing
0: going on. That's such an important distinction. And it's something I've heard you talk about in your podcasts that while grief is completely overwhelming, it doesn't literally only exist in your life. And there's something that I was struck by when you were just talking right now, because my dad died of cancer, but he had a year with a grave diagnosis. And so there was this opportunity, and I've heard you talk about your first wife's death before. There was this year of like co-creating to some degree, like he was a participant and we shared the process, not, you know, of his death, but of his dying. And people talk a lot about comparisons, which those of us in the grief world, we're not interested in comparisons. Everything that we're doing, we're doing with a, you know, a series of skill sets that we have and a series of skill sets that we need to grow, but there's just you cannot compare them. But I will say, having had a, a dad who died of a you know a longstanding illness, a like year is not that long, and then a mom who died suddenly, that there is a very different experience from the brain and the body of being allowed to co-create and participate in someone's dying. Versus having it happen and then you are holding it because it was handed to you.
1: Yes, I I agree with that. Also, I can't divide the experience I had with her. I can't pull it out of any of the losses I've had since. That's right. Um, They're all different, of course, every single one. But I can see that in each case, my parents have both died. Many friends have died. My mother-in-law, who I had just a Mm. really deep relationship with, um, died and was staying with us at that time. You know, many, many losses. The skills I learned help me every time. Yeah. And they keep growing and they keep developing. The losses are different every time because what happens is different and, you know, The relationships are different. Grief is its own thing for each person, but I've, it'll never be the same. Yeah. I don't believe it will. And, and I look at lots of things in my life as losses. Mm. Uh, Stephen Levine used to say, um, grief is the distance between what we want to be true and what's true.
0: Oh, man.
1: And, and I, that defines it for me. Yeah. So, um, you know, this, this sense of grief is only somebody we love dies. That, that is a very limited basket for yeah. what I consider to be grief. I, I experienced profound grief as well as joy when my kids went to college or when um, I, how did friendship go bad? or you know, There there are so many different kinds of loss and there's usually loss in every gain,
0: yeah. as well. It's interesting because that concept of loss is one that I'm spending a lot of time with in my trauma practice with folks who some of what they're doing and some of what they're experiencing is the, well, at least your kids are going back to school. Let's be happy about that. Or, you know, we're so grateful that it, you know, COVID didn't impact us more significantly. And what I know is that it, you cannot cheerlead yourself out of loss. You know, it's an energetic experience inside your body. You can minimize it. You can deny it, but you can't cheerlead your way out of experiencing it.
1: For sure. For sure. Oh my gosh. I've been working with that so much with people that kind of, um, I guess, I guess it's sort of a way to get out of the uncomfortable feeling, but it doesn't work. Ever. It never works. I've been suggesting to to people in my practice, I'm glad you have things to be grateful for. Right. Try to separate that from when you're having a feeling.
0: Yeah.
1: When when you're having a negative feeling, just have the
0: feeling. Yeah. Gratitude will come. (laughs) You know, great. But I think just exactly what you just said is so important, which is, is some of that basic education, you know, when, when people, when they're doing that cheerleading, part of what we ask is like, so what is the point of that? Well, I don't want to feel bad. Well, why not? What will happen if you feel bad? Well, I'm afraid I'll never feel good again. Like, okay, I hear that. That makes sense. What if we just like reality tested that? What if we just sat here for the next hour and felt bad the entire hour and did not do anything but feel bad? You know, that's not, it doesn't, that's not what happens. And so again, there's this notion of, oh, well, there's a fear of a bad feeling. Those are two bad things. The more that we can use the sort of educational, I'm with you. I'll, I'll hang out there. I believe you let's do, let's do that and see what happens. You won't be alone and then discover that, you know, it's more what you describe and talk about so beautifully, which is, yeah, there's grief. But there's also joy and humor and funny, sometimes in the same moment. I have been talking this week. I'm, I'm up in New York doing some book stuff with my publishing team. And the stuff that we're doing is amazing. It's so fun and amazing. And you know what it is? And also 100,000 times a day, I think about my parents and how I will not be able to, after this is all over, call them and hear in their voices their sheer delight at being connected and my joy. So yes, it's all good. And also it's all terrible <laughs> all at the same time.
1: Yeah, you know, I, for some reason I'm thinking about the very beginning. I mean, my my wife's been dead now. It'll be 26 years at the end of this month. Wow. That is an incredibly long time. I can't <laughs> believe death lasts that long. But that aside, yeah. um, I made a deal with myself before she died because at some point I realized I don't know what I'm preparing for. I mean, I have no idea what this is going to be like whatsoever. And so I decided every once in a while I have these kind of flare brain things that just say this, you got to do this. Mm -hmm. And I had one of those and it was give yourself everything you want that you can find money for and childcare for in the first year at least, and I had never taken that point of view mm. before in my life to completely prioritize myself that way, mm-hmm. and so if I cried, I said, tears are welcome. If I, if I laughed, laughter's is welcome. I, I was so uncritical of the states of mind that I went into, and so it just kept moving Yeah. And I'm not saying there weren't very hard moments, but there are also other kinds of moments. It was nothing like, you know, I'd experienced depression and anxiety before that. Nothing like that. That is so dull. There's there's nothing going on. Yeah. There might be one thing over and over again. Grief is not like that for me. Mm -hmm. It's, It's very full of very many different feelings all the time.
0: (laughs) It's making making me think of, of IFS work, Dick Schwartz's parts work. So for our listeners who don't know that, it's the idea that we have a core and a center and a self and that there are all of these parts of our personalities. And if you've seen the movie Inside Out, that's what it's based on. And, and when I'm talking to my clients and they're telling me about grief, we sort of map some of those parts. You know, I've had a lot of people who are like surprised to discover how angry they are, that they were never an angry person and they are just angry at everyone, their kids, the lady at the grocery store, their mailman, it doesn't matter, anger. And so what we talk about is like, okay, anger is driving your bus most of the time, like, and that isn't normally what happens to you. And do you have the capacity to swap out that bus driver for another bus driver? Maybe, should we try to play with that? When you're talking, it sounds like you have a party bus, like a bunch of different parts. Oh my
1: gosh, I totally have a party bus. That's great, Uh thank you.
0: (laughs) And, and, and what a resource that they trust each other to let different parts of you drive. And, and I think that's, I, when I listen to your podcast, I'm so grateful for that because people have a lot of judgment about the first time they laughed after their, you know, wife died or how, how they forgot to be grateful or that, you know, they have a lot of judgment. And the reality is our feelings come from this super highway in our body and our brain We're not conscious of them. They can become conscious. We, you know, we can impact them, but many of our emotional states are really just coming from the subconscious and the idea that we can have joy right there. I mean, it's so life affirming, of course it's there, but it doesn't make us a crappy person (laughs) because it's grief.
1: The other thing, Megan, is that, um, you know, this whole mind-body dichotomy thing
0: yeah, <laughs> It's a real
1: thing, and what, what I think works best for me is locating my feelings, locating myself with my feelings in my body, oh, something's going on, yeah. and then usually I'll come up with one word, mm. um, because once you add a sentence to what's happening... it it, it tends to locate in your brain. Mm. So, you know, I'm feeling something, oh, tense, oh, sad, oh, happy, you know, whatever it is, I'll try to name it just a little bit instead of a paragraph, a word. And then that usually allows me to dive into it more.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: And when I come out, then it tells me what it has to tell me. You know, I'm obviously depend a lot on my brain, right on my cognitive ability. But it isn't where my feelings originate.
0: Mm. I love uh, that. Yeah, I mean it, what it, it, I had this image of like massage therapy that anytime I go to a massage therapist, I am totally struck by some muscle group that I had a very tiny notion. Had some pain, but just by putting hands on it, by actually physically pushing on it and touching it, it becomes a whole other thing. And sometimes that whole other thing is something that needs more attention than I was aware of. But I love the way you're describing it, which is, you know, maybe after I spend some time with it, it will tell me what it is or it will allow me to translate it. But anything that's too heavy in the thinking, is gonna have cut off some of that experiential sort of pressure.
1: That that's the way I experience it. Mm. Right? When I was younger, um, I was too heady. Mm. I, I wasn't I wasn't depending on my intuition enough.
0: I love that. It well,
1: simply, it- but to me, um, without that respect for my body experience, I don't I don't move. I don't get where I'm going.
0: I'm sure you and I both have clients who come in and say, I don't know what I'm feeling. I, when you ask them, what are they thinking about and what are they feeling? They are describing clouds inside their brain. And, and by the way, it's not just grief that does that. You know, there are people in trauma work. There are people who they've been raised by you know alcoholics or so there's a codependency in that element and so they just were raised not to have a lot of their own connection to their own feelings because that's how they survived these and that's
1: also a loss yeah i don't know if you know francis weller's work
0: yeah you know this five
1: gates uh, gates of grief thing that he has i love um i've spent some time with him he's a very mm. poetic, wonderful man but you know that's grief for the uh expectation of what should have been, but wasn't.
0: Absolutely.
1: Shouldn't we be loved as children and accepted and nourished, but a lot of people are not.
0: No. And so when I think about it from a trauma perspective, we're always trying to find the opportunities to sort of heal some of that stuff. When people are coming in with a grief trauma, they're like, well, there's something really wrong with me. I haven't cried. And I find a lot of hope in the idea as you are describing it, although you haven't used this word, of just sort of like being curious as to what's inside the system. Right. So one when of
1: my favorite words, Megan. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when we're doing like when we're doing body work and when we're doing body scans or meditation, it's really just a slowing down. And If you are grieving, there are messages that we can find. They might show up as color. They might show up as heat. They might show up as an image. They're probably not going to show right up with, I am sad, or I am angry, or I have loss. That it might take you a little bit of time, but I have some clients that I've worked with for years and really we translate the colors in their body. To mean something. They don't get words. They just come to sort of speak the native language of their body. I think that's kind of awesome. As a therapist, I am like, listen, I'm curious about what goes on in your system. If you tell me something that makes sense to me because of a book I read, I'll give you that information, but really just lead us. And the body does because it's an organism and it reacts to the world and our experiences. It has information.
1: Isn't it amazing, though, that we're, I, I believe, we are actively taught to distrust our own internal system?
0: Absolutely.
1: Or at least we are not tra- taught to trust it. And so we're walking around afraid of our own contents. And that's a very, very difficult way to live. Um, I got a lot happier and a lot more humorous when I was deeply in a loss experience Mm -hmm. because I stopped doing that, you know? Yeah. And and that's not just because of the loss experience. It's about what we did during that time. And I have to really credit her because she drove a lot of that. Yeah. You know, we're going to do this together. This is happening to us we're going to do this, this, and this. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) you know, um, kind of being each other's teachers in that. And in fact, life is safe within its own rules. And obviously there are many unsafe things, but we can be safe in ourselves Uh, that can be cultivated.
0: I love that. I love safe in ourselves. And, uh, and, I mean, honestly, you're talking not just about grief, right? I mean, we're, or loss we're talking about in general, the way in which we can sort of be convinced to look outward more and look towards the rules and the regulations of how we are supposed to be versus looking inward. I talk a lot to people about the not so terrible things that are also part of grief, right? There's secondary losses, but there's secondary gains. And one of my secondary gains is I literally no longer have the capacity to give a shit about a lot of things. <laughs> and, and I'm really grateful. I can't do it. Like back to school night happened at my kid's school the other day. And I was like, I am not going to, that. I cannot make myself go to that. And I'm not being disrespectful to anyone who really thinks back to school night is incredibly important. You go on with your bad self, but I don't. And There are a number of things where maybe I should have given myself permission to go inward and come up with that decision or that choice for myself, because, you know, everything is energy. I have a limited amount of energy. Do I really want to spend three hours at back to school night? And there are some things that I have allowed myself to do and be on account of, well, Jesus, I just went through a lot and I'm trying to regulate myself. Um, that I, I really am grateful for. So there isn't just loss. There's loss and, ch- you know, the, there's loss and change.
1: I feel uh, loss is, you know, a given. We're going to have a yeah. loss. Change is actually a little bit more voluntary. Yeah. You have to engage with loss to get change. Yeah. Um, so I really am allergic to statements like cancer as a gift or,
0: you oh, know,
1: because yeah. it, it isn't, it isn't. Of course it's not. But, exactly. but what we make of it can be yeah. an, a tremendous gift. A yeah. tremendous gift. I mean, my life is totally different because of that experience. And that doesn't rule out that this is always my example. If I'm walking behind someone who walks just the way she did and looks mm-hmm. just the way she did, oh, it's a start, right? And and then what's more likely 26 years out is gratitude that we were both in bodies at the same time.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that
1: description, you know, but that doesn't rule out moments where there are certain conversations I've only had with her in my lifetime. Yeah. That's I right. have different conversations with my second wife. That's right. Right. So if I'm wanting that conversation, yeah. Ugh, right, so pissed yeah. you're not here to have that conversation, and then I go ahead and have it, but yeah. it sure is not the same. A body is something. Yeah. I don't like this skipping over that part. You know,
0: my parents, both of my parents, but particularly my mom, she she just held in her mind a lot of our family history. And some of it's written down, but a lot of it isn't. And I just never thought to catch it in my brain because I always had her. And so that thing that you're talking about, whether it's, you know, watching somebody's gait and being reminded my mother's perfume was Coco Chanel and a lot of women wear it and I will be somewhere and, you know, memory is very connected to the sense of smell And Teresa Rando calls those stugs, sudden temporary upsurges of grief. Mm -hmm. And I love that because the word temporary is in there. And in my writing workshop, I always ask people, what are your stugs? Like, what are the things that took, you know, just like felt like you got mugged or, you know, falling down the stairs? What did it take to recover from it? And for some people, they went to bed for two days. And they came back out into the world for other people, you know, it was 90 seconds. What I often say to people is that's an incredibly alone moment, right? Like you are the only person in that grocery store watching that woman walk the way. And so if we can use that, you know, the social structure that maybe even a polyvagal theory, like not to get all theoretical, but the idea that we are helped and held by other humans to turn to somebody and say, oh my God, that person looks like my wife who died. Or, oh my God, hang on a second, I smell my mother's perfume, I need, like I need to hold the wall, which is what always happens to me, I get dizzy.
1: But, but I'll, I don't know how long ago your parents died. Hmm. I have to say that those moments pass through me so fast. Yeah. That not, you know, and that's that's something that was promised to me that has been true. And Stephen Levine, he seems to be on my mind today. Yeah, um, he would say, grief um, won't change, but it will come less often, and it, it won't stay as long." Yeah. Um, and and I find that to be true. You know, that's that's my go-to example of those kind of moments. Love
0: that. And
1: and it's just it's just a ah, and then move on. It it's really quick. And right in the way you
0: it looks almost bittersweet it didn't look painful the way you describe it
1: no it is not painful in the classic sense of that term yeah. it just is it just yeah. is that you know i loved a person very much in very many ways and she died that's yeah. just the simple simple fact of it right and she's no longer in a body in this world yeah um but if people could come back, it would be really terribly complicated.
0: It would be. You're not wrong. <laughs>
1: I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Truly Madly Deeply.
0: Oh, my goodness. I love this. Yeah. I One love of my favorite movie.
1: movies ever. And it's very, wow. I think you can get it on YouTube. But um, I, I watched about that, that. Pretty, pretty early in grief. And I was like, yes, not a good idea, right, for someone um, to come back. And then I had, when I met my now wife, I had a series of dreams that she did come back and I'd be so, so happy. And then I'd be like, oh, sh-
0: right. Shit. Oh, now, am I gonna this
1: <laughs> well, now what do I do? And finally, the last dream that I had, I told her not, to, she couldn't mm-hmm. do that anymore. That if, we were oh. still connected. We were still in a relationship, but it was a very, it was a spiritual relationship.
0: When I was a kid and I, and I grew up Catholic and um, I would ask those questions like, well, listen, you know, if you're all going to be reunited in heaven, like, is there a line? How long does it last? What if you have more than one partner? Like, how's this going to work out? Um, I love that you brought up Truly Madly Deeply for people who are listening and follow me. You know that I put this movie up pretty regularly on my Instagram Because I really do think that we, all the resources that are out there, we have to point out the ones that are, that are good and warm and, and, and sort of hit the high notes in a good way. And also try to avoid the ones that are really, I don't know, like emotionally manipulative and, and not giving a good representation of grief. You can still watch them all, but I, I just think it's important. Some are a lot and, better than others for me. Yeah, and, and, and which is fine. And that's also true of books and TV and all that stuff. But yeah. I like to tell people about this movie because first of all, it's Alan Rickman and Juliet Stevenson who are just like ethereally amazing. But the concept is one that that implied in the loss is the idea of moving forward? That is the whole concept of the movie. The concept of the movie is her beloved has died, she is actively grieving, and she meets someone else. And her beloved is 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 haunting her. <laughs> he's moved in. They're musicians, and he's moved in with a whole orchestra in her apartment. And I won't spoil the movie, but but I it's it, it makes sense to me that you and I both love this movie because I believe that grieving is a verb. I believe it's something that we do while we are alive. I believe that we are constantly, the constellation of our lives makes sense to us, like almost five minutes past that we are doing things and meeting people and making choices that are true to us lots of the time, but in ways that we can't really fully understand in this moment. Well, and I don't
1: think I'd be giving away any more to say that what really helped me in that particular film was that he actually came back to help her move forward. That's right. And um, it's interesting to me, you know, before my wife died, she said, you are going to be partnered again. You are going to love again. Don't waste it. You've learned a lot. Don't waste it. And I'd be so pissed at that. But I'm so glad she said it out loud. Because the idea that you are um, given your life back in in the process of, of losing someone, particularly a partner, yeah, um, because it's one of the few losses where you actually do go and do it again,
0: <laughs> right? Right, against against all logic, against because, all uh, logic,
1: you know. But but uh, actually, it's not against all logic because. There's something you have the choice between risking loss or risking no love. I I don't care for that choice. No,
0: I don't either. I don't
1: know about now in my life, you know. (laughs) Maybe that's maybe this is my last partnership, but I don't rule it out. I have a a friend who had a wonderful marriage. Her husband died, and a few years later at 86 she fell in
0: love. So Oh my God. Who doesn't love? that story who
1: who doesn't who knows is what the you know she just follows herself and she grieved and you know still does and all that but life moved
0: and that's in, in trauma work what 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 we talk a lot about is like yes there's a traumatic event death loss of all the kinds job marriage all that these are traumatic events they overwhelm our systems. They take us out of the game for a moment. The concept of it becoming traumatizing is where we we don't grab hold of the living part, and and we are only sort of in the lost part. And there are a million different ways that I talk to grievers about this, because there's a natural point. And, and I don't know why I use this image a lot, but it's sort of like something really terrible happened. You're not sure where you're going now. You're not sure how to get there. So you're sitting at a bus stop. However, you can make that time at the bus stop comfortable. A cup of coffee, a book, a friend to come sit with you, a nice warm blanket, but you can't make the bus come. And then the bus or several buses come and you got to get on some and get, you know, come off and get back on. And it looks like everybody else is kind of riding happily. Or contentedly or with less distress. My belief is that we are moving forward all the time and that the concept of traumatic growth, which everybody loves, how do I get to traumatic growth, right? These are questions. How do I be more resilient and how do I get to traumatic growth? And what I say is, it's almost like we're asking the wrong questions, right? If someone is resilient, we don't really need to spend time with them. What we need to look at is who are the people in the system that might be traumatized, who might only take away the bad stuff. And there are some things, there's some data that tells us if you've had X, Y, and Z things in your life, you're more likely to be traumatized. But to me as a therapist, I want to be the hope merchant of the belief that you don't have to be traumatized. I'm not telling you you're going to get traumatic growth. We're not all going to start a podcast or write books or start a foundation. Some of us, our life is going to look very similar. Not much will have changed.
1: But however, the people who've processed their grief and and process is a dubious word. I
0: know. I agree with you. Actually
1: gone through it and and come to some place if it shows up nowhere else, they're probably the person who reaches out when someone else has a loss or someone calls and says, so-and-so just lost their blank. Will you talk to them? Yeah. Some of us make a a lifestyle out of it, but it doesn't have to be that. It impacts the way you walk in the world. And um, to me, that's actually more important than... Some big thing we do, yeah. It's walking differently. You know, I'm I've I've thought a lot about um, failure to grieve as an impact on what's going on in the world.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, that people are stuck in a traumatic reaction to loss in so many ways: climate, so many ways, um, race, all kinds of different ways, and that we're we're kind of locked. Because we can't realistically deal with what's happened. People that are trying to deny it, people, you know, all these ways of not being with what's happening. I know not everyone sees it like that, but that's how I see it. That, that yeah. a lot of um, tight, tightly wound um, inability to accept the truth
0: yeah.
1: of, of losses in our world. So I'll vote for that. That yeah. it may yeah. hurt, but I'd rather have it than feeling stuck and mired and unhappy.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about because I I said this to you off Mike, and I think it is something that really is your unique gift to talk about. But can you tell me a little bit about where joy falls in your grief process? I I know it's a part of it. I know it's one. Of, it's, it's on your party bus and. I'd love for you to just, just tell our listeners about where that
1: the bio that I have on my podcast um, uh, I think the last line is um, she gave herself to her grief surprised by frequent mom- moments of joy. Yeah um, that came because c- I had surrendered to I'm gonna really feel miserable for like a year. that's yeah. that's what I was anticipating you know she's gonna die. I'm gonna be in the dumps for a year and that is not even. Remotely, how I experienced it. Um, As you said, sometimes more than one feeling at a time. Yeah. Sometimes a really hard moment, but it didn't feel that hard. It just felt like what was happening. Yeah. Um, Oh, I'm crying. You know, I, I felt like I was constantly surprised by what happened, but I wasn't disturbed by it. Yeah. Oh, I'm crying. Oh, I'm laughing. Oh, I'm this, oh, I'm that. And honestly, she had a beautiful death. Mm. And she was so allergic to the idea of the Hollywood death, right? You know, beatific, surrounded, la, la, la. It wasn't quite that. It was funnier than that. (laughs) And it was weirder than that. (laughs) But it was a house full of community. I'll tell you a funny story that still makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. She almost died the night before. That wasn't funny because it got interrupted by our two and a half year old screaming in the middle of the night. And she just like, you could just see the energy go back into her body. Yeah. Yeah. The next night child was not afraid at all. She was just like hanging out on the bed. (laughs) So something happened for her in that 24 hours But still, she wasn't dying. Right. So I'm like, you know what, I haven't left the room in like weeks, it feels like I'm gonna go take a shower. So I went in the bathroom, I took off all my clothes. And my best friend ran into the bathroom and said, it's happening. (laughs) So I was
0: completely naked. Nice sense of humor.
1: That is... (laughs) With all these people in the room. And I'm like, Ah, then my parents came I'm like hugging her dead body naked and I did not care
0: yeah I no, did not care That's and I think it reminds me that I think death is a process that people participate in and that's how you just described it as opposed to something that like happens and and You know, I know there are sudden deaths and all of those things, but I I do think there's a process in our lives that includes death. And there are so many stories, including mine. I had to take a phone call from my brother when my dad was dying, which is four years ago, because he needed some information. The only place in my parents' house that you could get signal when it rains, because they live in this small seaside village, is the trash shed. So I was in the trash shed on the phone with my brother when my dad died, even though we had been keeping vigil and I had been back and forth and he had almost died with me in the room probably 15 times where I actually was when that man left the earth was in the trash shed. It. Yeah. And I mean, you know,
1: lots of people have guilt yeah. about that kind of thing, but it's just what happens. It's I just, mean, happens. And sometimes somewhat intentionally. I'm pretty sure my mom died on purpose when I wasn't there. Yeah. I was on my way back, <laughs> you know, and that's just part of it. But I brought up that because even though I went to take a shower, I felt completely with her. Yeah. And after she died, I felt as if I went with her part of the way. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this is really actually very cool. What? what she I mean what she was experiencing I can't prove it's what she was experiencing but I feel rest assured yeah so much joy and you know the two and a half year old saw angels on the ceiling and it was a very very special
0: yeah, it moment
1: and I've never been afraid of death since then yeah it's so scary to me
0: can I ask you a question as a long-term griever? Cause my dad died four years ago, my mom two years ago. And I, I often say during my podcast that this is part of my grief process, that being able to talk to people who are experts in the field, who have lots of years behind them is um, great for the whole community, but really it's just like, you know, selfishly, I get to ask questions about it. I'm curious about, I mean, you're two and a half is so young. What was the experience that you had and as a mom to kids in this moment, was that like an umbrella that you were able to bring them under or did they have their own very different disparate experiences? I'm asking this question because one of the things that was incredibly hard for me when my mom died was to be both things, to be a daughter yeah. and a mother. And I have spoken, I've had many, many mothers who have lost children, at, but yet have other children, people who've lost spouses. And, and people have described something different generally, like a relief that they had something, something else to draw their attention was almost like a life force for them. And for me, that was not the case. I mean, I think part of the reason I did inpatient treatment was I really needed to be wholly in my own feelings with myself. And I, I don't say that with any judgment, but I'm just curious because two and a half feels so young. And I'm just wondering what would, your experience was.
1: There's so much to say about that, but I think I can narrow it down. Yeah. So I had in my home, a 14-year-old and a two and a half-year-old. So very different. Very so,
0: different developmental
1: The 14-year-old when she was 11, um, I've been out since I was 18, 17, 18. Um, I had her as a lesbian. Her biological father, who she had a relationship with, died when she was 11. And I tried to protect her. And that is one of the most painful things in her life to date. Because
0: your protection
1: You know, we went home. That was also because I felt his partner needed to just be with him. But um, she felt like she missed it. And so when Joanne was dying, I told her she could be a part of everything she wanted to be. And that slopped over onto her sister, who was two and a half. But I sort of trusted them that they would step away if it was too much for them. So they went through it with me and um,
0: that's amazing.
1: They, they wanted to be there the whole time. We had a wake for 36 hours and we slept in the room with her body that not, you know, the night of the wake. Yeah. I mean, it was very, the three of us together. Oh, yeah. They never did the thing kids do. When are they coming back or,
0: I mean, so they, knew. they knew she had, they, died. They, they
1: were there that, you know, they didn't think she was coming back. No. It never came up, you know, it, and what I realized, you know, um, they're both verbal, but in different ways, the older one was always better at talking about her feelings directly. Yeah. Um, but I realized, you know, she would talk to me about that loss still does yeah what she learned from it and what she took out of it and the one who was two and a half until recently was allergic to talking about it um it didn't mean that she didn't it wasn't denial yeah and at some point i realized well a two and a half year old is not that verbal
0: no they don't have a big no
1: that's not the way and once I realized that, it was like, oh, this is the way that she does it because of how old she was when that happened. Yeah, that's right. And then in the last few years, um, she's in media, and she started sending me guests. And she'd say, "This this really moved me, Mom," or "This is really, this is really cool. Try this person." And I realized, in order to send them, she had to watch them. Right. And she's developing a language for herself. Um, But I never felt as if they were damaged by the experience. I just felt like it's part of their experience.
0: Yeah. And,
1: And it gives them a special connection to, for instance, the younger one's roommate was losing her father and she would come and talk to Amber all the time. You know, you can just feel it when someone isn't going to react and it makes, it makes them safe for their friends.
0: So much of what we talk about in trauma is how, how was the system around you? You know, were there people, were people able to remain calm? Were they able to stay regulated? And unfortunately for, you know, when there's kids involved that, means that we need the adults around them to stay regulated and stable. And if they're going- hard. Yeah, it's so hard, right? The worst
1: moments were when the two and a half year old was acting out. I'm a really patient person by and large. I just didn't have the bandwidth. And the 14 year old would say, mom, you're you're kind of losing it. You know, Uh, she was my monitor almost. So I'm not saying there weren't hard moments. Oh, of course. But um, I also was all, i was a therapist already, and my schedule was pretty light because I'd taken four months off. Yeah, so right. once they went to school, I had time to myself. Yeah. And I feel that made a huge difference. It's really so hard cool. to let grief
0: happen if you don't have any time. If you don't have any time to press on the muscles, right? Like it's, it, it takes it's, a moment it takes
1: for whatever to happen and, you know, yeah. do whatever I, I wanted to. I had to sing, I had to put my hands in the dirt, you know there are these things I just felt compelled to do but if I hadn't had the time to do them I don't know how that would have been.
0: Well, you just quickly said the thing that I think is so critical for people to hear which is that it is quite childlike in its, in its way. You know, I'm always fascinated to watch how children put themselves to sleep like my son since he was a baby he sort of like rubs his forehead, and then he puts himself to sleep and it's just this, I didn't ever do that to him it's just an instinctive way that his body soothes himself. but in grief for adults there's often these instinctual things You know, I picked up writing, I picked it up and then I learned all the neuroscience behind it. I knew some of it, but I, I really sort of did a deep dive and was like, wow, I'm really proud of myself for reaching for such a great resource that was so helpful to me, but everything swimming, walking, gardening, singing, you know, all of those things, reading and doing and building something like everything, starting a foundation, it can all be grief related. And when I'm working with clients, a lot of what I'm saying is be curious and attentive to those glimmers, because that's the invitation to do the shift in the energy, because otherwise you just carry that energy, which, and I have respect for that also, because I do think there are some people that don't really get to their grief work and it's not possible to do it until 10 years later. I don't think there's one way. I've
1: I've had many guests like that. Yeah. Someone whose parents were murdered when he was 14, he couldn't handle it until he was in his mid-20s. And that makes sense. Right. It totally makes sense. <laughs> but I think it's one.
0: <laughs> I think it's tricky because that because there is this, like, you know, it's just wrong-headed notion that, you know, let's say like a year after your terrible event happens, you should have figured, you know, your shit out. And that is not. I mean, not only is that like completely and totally wrong, it's not respectful of what people's attachments were, how old they were, how much support they had, what the work looks like. It's just not true. And I'm
1: hoping this will be, I think this will be good news to you and maybe some of your listeners. Um, My grief continues to evolve. Yeah. I have no expectation that somehow... Some concluding moment will occur where, you know, I have I am no longer a person who lost a spouse, right? Or parents, or you know, I don't even want to be that person. You know, those movies where you can remove your memory. Right. A terrible right. thing. No, why would I do that? I mean, if it's a package deal, no, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm friends with my grief.
0: Yeah. That's where my love lives. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. It's like poetry, the image that I use a lot. And I, and I feel like it's good because I feel like it sort of stops the conversation in its tracks is no one in my entire life. You know, my daughter's 13. No one has ever suggested for a second that I should be anything other than a mother and continuing to mother her. And that is what I feel like is I grew a griever, primary griever when my dad died. And that parts of me grew then that will never ungrow. I'm not interested in them not being there. And even if I was interested in them not being there, that wouldn't make them not be there. And so that's the image that I say to people when you know when they're like, oh, you know, you're it doesn't happen very often. But there are people that are like, oh, you know, do you when think? When will I making,
1: be done? I hear do you, that. Or me. do you I
0: think you're what? making it worse by talking about it all the time? And, and what I say is, I, I know you mean that question with love, but it's just sort of ignorant. Like, no, that's not how this <laughs> works.
1: I don't remember which kid said it. Probably the younger one at one point said, Mom, you know, not everyone likes to talk about death as much as you do. <laughs> so there's that um
0: respect for that right that i have absolute respect for that i mean i have had a number of people i have five brothers and sisters first of all you know i had ptsd after my mom died and i was not the closest to her by a long shot so you know and i found that
1: that sure doesn't always line up does it yeah
0: i was totally shocked by i mean i you know and i laugh and joke with people all the time like listen If knowing all the things could keep you safe from having the bad experiences, believe me, I know all the things I should not. I probably recovered in terms of PTSD. I don't think of recovering from grief, but the PTSD symptoms that were really relentless, I probably got to the treatment and was able to get into the treatment faster than the average bear because of all the knowledge and connections that I had. But But I think about it a lot, you know, my siblings, I get to look at this sort of panoply of different ways of, of grieving or, you know, not as much grieving. And I do that with 0% judgment. It's more, everybody is their own in their own way. And definitely I've got some who are like, I don't really want to talk about this grief stuff. Like, let's talk about something else. You know, people
1: maybe ask you the same question they ask me: Does it make it easier to grieve that you're an expert in grief? <laughs> well, not not in general. Only in
0: one way. I know I have to do it. Yeah, I don't have a lot of judgment anymore of myself, and that I think I, when I, when clients come in, and a they don't have a lot of like the basic education of what happens to your body when you're in trauma. I I have such empathy and we just very quickly work to normalize and get the education so that they don't have to feel like they're doing something wrong or they're going crazy. And I don't have the judgment, which is, you know, I feel what I feel when I feel it. I often find it annoying or disruptive or inconvenient that I have to sit here in bed for a day and cry because I had other plans. But I also have clients that come in that really have a lot of their wounded self. They have a lot of criticism about or the piece of themselves that, you know, they feel guilt or shame about that, you know, they're they're not ready to drop that. And that is the one thing that I will say that's probably true from being in therapy for decades and a therapist is that that particular skill is really useful in kicking into carrying and holding and processing grief. Like if you can get right to that part without the judgment element, that's, that's good luck.
1: I find the curiosity. Yeah. I like that word as well. Um, yeah. what is, what is your system telling you? Not what should you be feeling at
0: it's just a it not a helpful word in grief. Will you tell us, I want to be mindful of your time. So I'm going to let you go. But do you have a a, a particular like grief activity that you either discovered, you know, at the last the death of your wife, or just one that, you know, this I I garden while I'm grieving, or I um I'd love for you to share that if you can.
1: Sure. So for me, writing comes later. And it and it probably shows in how undisciplined I am as a writer. <laughs> you know, it's not my first stop. My yep. first stop is almost always singing.
0: Oh man. Um, Love and, that.
1: Um and it makes some physical sense to me. I've thought yep. about it a lot because you have to breathe if you sing.
0: That's right.
1: And when when my wife first died, I had four I guess it was four songs that I sang every day. Hmm. And they were songs that captured the experience I was having, but all the experience. There's a Winona Judd song called Only Love. Okay. Um, There's a Anita Baker song, Only for a While. You know, they were all these different, You're Going to Feel Terrible, Only for a While Though. Um, You know, various songs, a Sweet Honey in the Rock song, the Ancestors song. And I would sing them every day. And I just had to. I just had to sing them every day. I didn't have to think about them or process them. I just had to sing them.
0: And
1: uh, then I knew that I was heading towards maybe considering finding another partner. Because I started wanting to sing um, this song that's about I don't know you yet. I think it's a Beatles song. I don't know you yet, but I know you, you know, kind of thing. That's amazing. <laughs> but it, it just, it was very visceral. I didn't decide to sing certain things. They're just like that one. Um, I'm now, I've been for the last maybe 15 years in a gospel choir. Oh. And that makes complete sense because that is grief music.
0: Yeah, totally. And
1: interestingly, you know, modern gospel music is praise music, which is extremely joyful. Yep. But our our director says there's always some anger behind it. Yeah. Because it came out of a loss experience, right?
0: Mm, yeah.
1: So mm. that's been hard in the pandemic because we couldn't rehearse in yeah. person. And so one of my primary outlets was not available. Yep. And I had to just breathe a lot. To me. Yeah. Taking a full breath into my whole body and accepting what I find there is probably my primary go to singing and writing anything else I do is, I think, a way to connect with that.
0: It's so interesting. And thank you for answering that question. It's such a beautiful answer. And it it makes me think all kinds of things just about what song and music is and how your body is a vessel to that and how you cannot on your own create what a gospel choir would give you in terms of sound and energy around you. But I, I love these conversations with people because even when gospel choir music isn't available to us we have some clues if we're curious about what it is that maybe your body needs you know in order to sort of allow the grief to process through that if you think about it as this energy that you're carrying and that you want to be able to lay that energy across the ground and back give it back to the universe and not carry as much of it and to have tools to have actual tools to say oh i'm gonna go sing because i feel i feel that energy in my body is like that that grief education that I feel like most of us haven't had.
1: I've, I've participated several years. It got, it got um, waylaid because of the pandemic in a day long conference called The Art of Saying Goodbye. Wow. And it's all different artists, writers, um, visual artists, etc. And I've done the music part. Mm. And a lot of that is just about sharing our experiences of loss and then singing them. And it's really amazing to me what happens for people. Um, A woman who'd lost her child and she had sung her child out.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: Her child was, I think, 10 when he died. Beautiful woman. She was doing uh, work in the art space, um, doing art with people with families facing cancer, but she had not sung since then. And I consider her incredibly courageous because she came to mind, right? She chose to, but she said, I don't think I'm gonna be able to sing. I, I, just, I said, that's fine, just listen to the voices. Just let the voices feed you. And by the end, she was singing with her full oh, self. You're gonna kill And me. crying, of course. Oh,
0: are you gonna make me and, cry?
1: You know, it, that kind of magic, and then there was another guy whose um, mother had been an opera singer. And he had lost his voice, basically. He never sang because he didn't want to be compared. She was critical, of course, of anybody's. Mm-hmm. And he had just landed there because he was a volunteer. And I happened to have room in mind, right? Yeah. He was not planning on singing. But it's contagious. If people are singing around you. I agree. It's really likely,
0: especially if it's not it gets hard. gets inside you, whether you're singing or not, it gets in there.
1: Right, well, yes. by the end he was singing and he had a beautiful voice. He had never sung. Mm-hmm. To me, that's magic because then your channels are open, right? And I don't think, maybe she would have come back to her voice eventually, but coming back to her voice in community to me is very touching. Yeah. Um,
0: so those are a couple of my favorite experiences. Oh, those are those are just, you know, those are gorgeous. And what what it also reminds me, which I often talk about, is you know, what sort of griever are you? Are you someone who who want who ne- wants and needs to connect to others in order to feel safer with your feelings? And in that case, you know, therapy is a great place to start. Or are you someone that really needs the privacy of your own contained space in order to be with your feelings? And most people who come to me don't know the answer to that, which is completely fine. You know, again, with a spirit of curiosity and the belief that we are kind of wired to do this, that it's part of our humanity, just like, you know, hunting and gathering and all of that, that grieving has always been there and loss has always been there and that it's wired into us to, to want to. be able to move that energy in a way. But I love the idea that there's a courage that you call on just in being curious, right? Which is, I'm, I'm showing up to this, but I'm not planning on singing. Right. Is in and of itself, like this little balloon of hope, the for belief sure. that there's something that can be different. And oh my gosh, what an opportunity for those people to have that program. I mean, that just sounds incredible.
1: And, and I'm gonna say that I believe... It's, it's hard to fully process our griefs if we don't have space for ourselves alone and space yeah, for community. I
0: totally agree.
1: I, I just think they're, they're, different ones are needed at different times. Right. It's hard to kind of hit all the, all the points.
0: Totally agree. Both yeah when I'm when I'm asking that question it's often an assessment question uh-huh. which is kind of like what do you instinctively already do and uh-huh. what do we have to help you grow it's, so that you can
1: exactly yeah exactly. you can yeah, I totally completely. I think society is to blame for why it's so hard to be in community as grievers
0: I agree mm-hmm. I agree and we I get,
1: I d- and, get terrible yeah. messages and we you know
0: but hopefully you and I are working. Everyone's listening to us and they are believing what we are saying and that there's health and hope and all of the possibilities of just saying, this is something we can do and we don't have to do it behind closed doors and we don't have to pathologize it. Like it's a problem. It's just a part of life Um, because there are other cultures who do this way better than we do and do it with more openness than we do and more resource than we do. And, I am so delighted that I got all this time with you today. This was really just. Thank you for love. having
1: me. It, these are, I just love having these conversations. Oh,
0: they're, they're really them. heartwarming and hopeful. And I really do think that you, you know, and it, and it, I think it's a tribute to the, your relationship and your work. And, but I think it is also this personality that you have <laughs> developed in grief, which just allows us to see all the multifacets of it. And it's really, really hopeful. I'm really really grateful to, to have spent this time with you. Enjoy your, enjoy your days. And I'll look forward to seeing you again in the not so distant future. Sounds good. All right, Cheryl, take care. Bye-bye. Hey everybody. Don't forget to go over to Apple podcasts and give us a rating. If you're enjoying the show, it really helps people find us the uh, five-star ratings and the comments help the algorithm suggest the podcast to people who are looking for support with grief and loss. And also I think help the grievers decide whether or not this is a show they would want to listen to. So don't forget to do that. And follow me on Instagram. I've got a lot going on right now. My Instagram is, I've got some help and support, a great team, and there's so much for you to uh, learn from in terms of resources and point you in the direction of things that are happening in the grief and loss world. Okay. See you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.